reading this last weekend. I do. I have done a, quite a bit of driving and traveling in the last couple years of presenting uh, MC ministry and college and different things like that. And I'm not ashamed to admit that I am very dependent on a GPS. I don't know how people did it when you had to get out the atlas and the maps and hold them up and find the exits. I could not do that. I would be lost and driving around in circles. I am very dependent on my GPS to tell me where I need to go and exactly when I need to be there and things like that. But as I was doing some reading, I read about three stories, three people that the GPS took them to their wrong destination. The first one was a lady who went with her daughter to visit a college in Maine. They'd been renting a car and they were trying to find the car rental place to return it so that they could fly home. They followed their GPS all the way until they ended up in a cemetery. When they ended up in the cemetery, the GPS simply told them that they'd arrived at their destination and shut off. (laughs) One couple traveled from Illinois to North Carolina, and they needed a place to stay. I've driven that route a couple times. And so they plugged in the address of a hotel that they'd found online and gotten a pretty good deal on. And they ended up stuck between two cornfields at midnight. And my personal favorite, and don't ask me why these people did this, but it was three tourists who used their GPS in Australia to try to get to this island. And so as they were driving, they started driving along this path, and the road started turning to gravel, and the gravel started turning to mud, and the mud started turning to water, and they ended up having to evacuate their vehicle because they'd driven it into the ocean because the GPS had told them to do that. And so the car was totaled. It was completely flooded because of water, and they had to take a ferry to the island that they were trying to get to. Don't ask me why they drove their car into the water. That's just what the story says. Now, some of those people had the wrong directions, and they followed their directions up until the point of almost insanity, trying to drive your car into the water over to where the island was. As we look at these last couple verses of Matthew, we see Christ's directions for his disciples. Christ's last words to his disciples that are at least recorded in the book of Matthew. Many people call this, most people call this passage the Great Commission. We briefly looked at it last week in studying the resurrection, but I thought it was appropriate. I thought it was good for us this morning to look closer at these three verses. Remember, as Christ is giving them these instructions, he's giving them these commands that they would remember as they went into the world. And while some of you might look at these commands and say, well, Christ isn't really giving them directions. He's not telling them to go anywhere necessarily. He actually is instructing them to go. He's instructing them to go into the world. He's giving them their commands that they would remember for their life and ministry as disciples. Soon Christ would not be with them. Soon Christ would ascend into heaven and they would be here left on the earth. You know, our church has the mission statement, we exist to glorify God by making disciples, by sinking our roots deep into God's word. I would argue that if you look at most churches, almost every church's mission statement that they have for why they exist, you're going to find something like, we exist to glorify God by making disciples. 
Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think all these churches have this somewhat thrust into their mission statement? It's because this is the mission of the church. The church is called by Jesus Christ to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. And so what I want us to see this morning is simply this, that as we proclaim Christ, we proclaim Christ by making disciples. We sang about this morning, take the name of Jesus with you. As we go into the world, as we proclaim Christ, how do we do that? We proclaim Christ by making disciples. But I would argue this morning that churches, not necessarily our church, but churches and people in churches don't always get the Great Commission right. They might have good motivations, they might have good ideas, but friends, sometimes we get the Great Commission wrong. Here's a couple of different ways that we get the Great Commission wrong. First of all, we get the Great Commission wrong when we make disciples of our political and social opinions rather than making disciples of Jesus Christ. Do you know people who do that? Have you been guilty of doing that? I will admit sometimes I am guilty of doing that. Maybe you have a certain way that you see life or see the world. We get the Great Commission wrong when we think this person has to believe all these different political opinions that I have. That for this person to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, they had to vote for this candidate. They had to agree with me on all these different social issues. Maybe those are good things. Maybe those are important things, but they're not the gospel. And too, to- too many times, far too often, we can get the Great Commission wrong by thinking this person is only a disciple of Christ if they think and act like me. Secondly, we get the Great Commission wrong when we have members who are baptized and trained without receiving the gospel. Sometimes we're too anxious to get people into the baptismal and get to get people trained and involved in the church that we sometimes neglect to find out if they really have accepted Christ, if they've really trusted in him as Savior, if he is their Lord. Again, I'm not saying our church, I'm not saying churches necessarily, you know, but I'm saying churches in general, this can be a huge problem. We get the Great Commission wrong when we have members who have received the gospel, but they haven't been baptized or trained. We witness to people, they receive the gospel, they receive it by faith, and they are Christians, yes, but they've not been baptized and they have not been trained afterwards. Far too often we can want so many people to make a profession of faith, but we just leave them there and we don't help them obey all that Christ has commanded for them to do. Two more. We get the Great Commission wrong when we only make disciples locally and we never make disciples globally. What do I mean by this? We only focus on making disciples here and we never think about how can our church, how can we be part of the Great Commission around the world as well to all nations. And lastly, the opposite of this. We get the Great Commission wrong when we make disciples globally, but we never make them locally. There are far too many churches who would boast having dozens and dozens of missionaries on their boards and their churches, but yet they neglect 
to make disciples right where they are at. These are just a couple ways. I'm sure there are many more ways that we get the Great Commission wrong, but what I want us to do this morning is study God's Word together. How can we get the Great Commission right? If this is the mission of the church, if this is what our church should be about, should be centered on, how can we get the Great Commission right? Well, first of all, we can go and make disciples under the authority of Christ. We see this in verse 18. Remember what happened when the disciples saw Christ? They gather on Galilee after Christ had risen from the dead. They all come to him, and as they see Christ, many of them begin worshiping him and falling down at his feet, calling him Lord, praising him in this reverence position. But it says some doubted. Some were hesitant. Some had a little bit of questions. And so now Jesus comes to them with his last words that he would record here in the Gospel of Matthew. And notice what he first says. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. A very simple statement, and oftentimes when we think of the Great Commission, we overlook this verse, but it's very important what Christ is saying. Christ is telling them that he has all authority, meaning that there isn't one area of our lives, there isn't one area in the world, there isn't one area in heaven that Christ does not have authority over. Christ has all the authority. In Matthew chapters 8 through 10, we see Christ's authority. We see his authority and how he demonstrates it by healing lepers and the paralyzed, those people who are oppressed by demons, those who are sick, those who were sick for long times and short times. He raises someone from the dead. He calms a storm that is shaking. He makes the mute people talk and he shows his authority even to forgive people's sin but yet these people rejected christ's authority they went and they arrested christ and you remember what happens when the soldiers arrest christ peter goes over and he cuts the ear off of one of the soldiers and what did christ say in the garden he said do you not think that if i commanded it my father at once would not send more than 12 legions of angels What is Christ saying? Peter, I have authority. That even though I'm being arrested at this moment, I have the authority over my life. And if I didn't want to be in this situation, I wouldn't be. Do you remember what happens when Caiaphas, the high priest, is questioning Jesus and accusing him? Christ tells him, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated in heaven at the right hand of God. He's saying, I have authority. I'm still in control. But in John 18, and this is probably my favorite gospel and favorite gospel account of the crucifixion and resurrection, Christ is on trial, and as he's standing before Pilate, Pilate is talking to him and questioning him, and we know that Pilate doesn't really want to condemn Jesus, but he's put into this tough situation. And so when Pilate asks him, are you 
the king of the Jews, Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I wouldn't be delivered to the Jews. Christ has this exchange with Pilate. He starts talking to him about how he truly is the king. And you remember what Christ, what Pilate says as the situation gets more intense and more involved. And Pilate says, don't you realize that I have authority over your life, whether you live or die? And what does Jesus say? He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had not been given to you from above. He's saying, you would have no authority over my life, Pilate, if it was not given to you. Christ has authority. But too many times we read this verse and we think, okay, Christ has authority because he was raised from the dead. And that's not true. Christ has always had all authority. Christ has always had all authority from his Father in heaven. It wasn't a prize that he won at the resurrection. It wasn't a requirement that he had to meet. Christ has always had this authority. But it's shown here. It's displayed here. The resurrection doesn't give Christ the authority, but it confirms, it shows us that Christ truly is who he says he was. You know, a couple years ago, or about a year ago, I was working at the YMCA, and we'd get all these subs that would come in and work for us and work with the kids because we didn't have that many workers. And you never know quite what you're going to get with a substitute worker coming in. Some of them were really, really good with the kids, and some of them thought they were really good with the kids, and some of them struggled with children. And, you know, I'm not saying this in a mean fashion, but some of them, I wondered, why are you working with kids? And kids can tell, maybe more than anyone else, who really has the authority? Who's the one that's really in charge? Who do I have to listen to at this moment? Kids know whether or not you are in charge or you're a phony. And they know very fast. Christ is telling us all authority has been given to me in heaven, all things in heaven, all things that are eternal, and on earth. There's not an aspect of the world, there's not a nation that is not under the authority of Christ in some way. They may not recognize Christ as king, they may not accept his authority, but one day we know from Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice also, though, that this authority was given to Christ. All authority is given to me. Well, who gave Christ authority? What was the Father? The Father gave Christ, the Son, all authority in heaven on earth. Now, we know that they're equal. We know that they're both God. But yet, in their roles in the Trinity, the Father gave Christ authority. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so then we go and we make disciples because of the authority of Christ. This impacts how we go and make disciples. We don't go thinking that we don't have authority or a leg to stand on. 
We don't go believing that we don't really have the truth. But friends, we go and we make disciples to all the nations because all authority has been given to Christ and he gives authority to us as well. Friends, if Christ has all authority, let me ask you, does he have authority over your life as well? He has authority, has power over everything else. Does he have authority over you in your life? And do you use this authority? Do you believe in this authority? Do you go and preach the gospel to others with this authority as you are making disciples? Richard Baxter once said this, I preached to others. I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. Richard Baxter preached with the authority of Christ, knowing that he would one day die and that they would one day die as well. Do you go to others? Do you make disciples with the authority of Christ? Secondly, notice with me, go and make disciples by baptizing and teaching. Go and make disciples by baptizing and teaching. We get to the thrust or the main idea of the command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, much is made of this idea of making disciples, being the main verb or the main idea of the verse. Now, I would argue this, that that's true, that as you look at all of these different verbs here, going and baptizing and <clears throat> making disciples, Making disciples is really what's central in this verse, but it's in conjunction with going. There's a reason going is mentioned first. You are to go and make disciples simultaneously. As you're going out, you are making disciples. Christ is sending his disciples out into the world to make other disciples. This word go means to proceed forth or to be sent out. By someone else to commission someone for service Christ in a very real way is sending them from Galilee into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth the main idea is that we make disciples but it does not negate the fact that we are to go that we're not necessarily to stay put now does that mean that our whole church picks up and moves somewhere else halfway across the world? Maybe not. Does that mean that we have to spend all of our lives going and being on the road like Christ was and like evangelists are? Maybe not, but it does mean that we go out and we preach the gospel to others. That we go and tell of this news of Christ. Matthew records the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And as all this comes to a close, Christ says, you are to go out. You're to go forth and preach this news. You've now heard everything that I've commanded you to do. Now you are to go. We're also to make disciples. Again, I think this is the main idea of this command. This is the main thing, the big verb, as some people would say. It's a compound word that means Gathering learners or pupils, giving people instruction. But it didn't necessarily happen in the classroom, but it happened life on life. A disciple 
would follow their teacher around and do life with him. And he would teach them lessons along the way. There was more than just an element of learning and instruction in a classroom, but there was a level of commitment here that disciples made to their master. You know, I'm a teacher at a Christian school, but none of my students, trust me, none of my students say that they're disciples of Mr. Lewis. None of them go on and say, I learned from Mr. Lewis. In fact, if they see me at Walmart, a lot of times they try to avoid me or something. We are disciples of Christ, though. There's a different level of commitment here. You're not just learning from Christ. You're not just living like Christ, but you are giving your life to him. You're loyal to him. Christ chose for himself 12 people who would be his disciples, who would be close to him. Now, we know one of them betrayed Christ, so there was only 11 at this point. Yet Christ would send them out And have them go make disciples. Now here's a question as we read this text. Why would Christ send them out? Why would Christ tell them to go if he'd already been rejected? If he'd already died on the cross. If Judas had betrayed Christ. If they had already scattered and ran away from Christ. Why would people want to listen to this message? Why can they have confidence in their going and making disciples? Why would they think anyone would listen to Christ? And I would argue this, that it's because of the resurrection. The resurrection is the confirmation of our faith, that Christ not only lived, he not only died, but that he rose again from the dead. Paul says if we didn't have the resurrection, if the resurrection had not happened, then our faith would be in vain. And so we go forth knowing that Christ has risen from the dead. Christ sends them out in this way, preaching and sharing the gospel with others, knowing that the resurrection had indeed happened and that their gospel was true. Notice what else he says. He says, go and make disciples of all nations of all nations. This would be a new idea for them. They'd been preaching primarily to the Jews in Judea and somewhat Samaria, but they would go out and they would make disciples of all the nations. They would go preach the gospel as Acts says unto the uttermost part of the earth. And if you read the book of Acts, you see how they did make disciples in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria. And then to all these Gentile cities that Paul traveled to on his journeys. That this gospel message would not stay isolated with the Jews, but that it would go out to the Gentile people as well. And friends, if it wasn't for that, I would argue many of us would not be Christians today. That many of us would not have heard the gospel ourselves. But this making disciples, this going out, was not just for Jews anymore, but as Paul calls this the mystery of Christ. It would be a gospel for Jews and Gentiles alike. Christ says to go and make disciples of all the nations. This doesn't mean, as some people would interpret this verse, this doesn't mean that all of the nations are going to believe. 
This doesn't mean that for the kingdom to come, every single nation and every single person has to accept the gospel for there to be a kingdom here on earth. But rather, Christ is showing that this kingdom, that his gospel was going to build a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That the gospel would go out unto the entire world. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. But as we're going out, as we're making disciples, as we're witnessing to others, we don't just share the gospel with them. Obviously, the gospel is the most important part of making a disciple. It is the saving power of God. But Christ gives us some other instructions as well. I think about it this way. I, a couple years ago, was working in the meat department in college, and I got trained, and I was really excited because I'd been on the register, and now I got to kind of go to the back and cut different slices of meat and learn from these guys. And when I went back there, I had several weeks of training. I had several weeks of how to handle food and different certifications I had to have and how to use a knife and things like that. Can you imagine, though, if I'd gone back there and they just handed me a big knife and a large slab of meat and they said, start cutting this up in all these different chops, I'd probably not be standing here with all my fingers today. But no, they had to teach me. They had to train me. They had to show me what I was supposed to do. They had to give me all the tools that I needed. And in the same way, we don't just make disciples by sharing the gospel. Obviously, that is salvation. That shows whether or not you're spending eternity with God. But we also baptize and we teach. Now, again, baptism does not save anyone. But it is our public profession of faith. Salvation does not require Baptism, But as we see in the New Testament, it is the regular pattern of becoming a follower of Christ. Saved, baptized, and added to the church. We see over and over again people who were saved and then as a public profession of that faith, they go and they're baptized. And they tell others that I have made a commitment to follow Christ, that I've become a disciple And then they were added to the church. Baptism doesn't save a believer, but it is a sign that we are followers of Christ. We know that the thief on the cross obviously wasn't baptized. He didn't have the chance to be. And if a person truly accepts Christ, baptism is not going to add anything to his salvation. But there's two commandments that Christ gives to his church. We call them the two commandments ordinances or baptism and communion and neither one of those add any grace to a believer they don't add any merit to our salvation but they are signs baptism is a sign that we follow christ communion actually is a sign that we follow christ as well that we identify with his death that we remember what he has done for us on the cross baptizing them as you're going out and then lastly teaching them he says teaching them to observe all that i have commanded for you to do this 
idea of discipleship doesn't just stop at salvation. It doesn't just stop at baptism, but it includes the maturing and the learning of that individual of the ways of Christ. This is why even the book of Matthew and the other gospels were written. So that they could know who Christ was. So that they could learn about his life and what he had commanded for them to do. Again, this isn't necessarily a classroom type instruction. But it is a life on life teaching of Christ's life and what he had commanded for these people to do. Well, what did Christ commanded for his disciples to do? Well, we talked about baptism and communion. But really, as we read the Gospels, we read Christ's commands to his disciples. We read all the different teaching that Christ gave them. We know that above all, even, Christ tells his disciples to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. He says this is the greatest commandment. He gives us other instructions as well in the Sermon on the Mount and other discourses throughout his earthly life. But he doesn't just give us that, but I would argue this, that the entire Bible tells us what it means to obey what Christ has commanded us to do. The Old Testament points to the person of Christ, who Christ was, what he would do, why we needed his salvation. The Gospels tell us about the life of Christ, the things that he commanded for us to do, who he was, his death, his resurrection. The book of Acts tells us what these disciples who became apostles, what they did with this gospel message, how it went out and went forth into all the world. And then the epistles tell us, teach us how to live in accordance with what Christ has commanded for us to do. What I'm trying to say is this, that the Bible is God's word. It's important. It's holy. We elevate it. But we don't just read the Bible to read the Bible. But we read the Bible because the Bible is the testimony of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. Because in reading the Bible, we know the author, Jesus Christ and God. I had my students a couple months ago read the diary of Anne Frank. This story about a girl who lived in... Uh, who lived during World War II and who was hiding from the Nazis in the secret annex that her father owned inside of her father's work. And she hid there for almost three years total. And she kept this diary about her experiences. Now, she was only a 13-year-old girl, so some of her experiences include her crushes and different things and how annoying her parents were. It's actually kind of funny to see how kids really haven't changed from the 1940s until now. But as we read this book, and this book is standard literature for those in middle school, almost every school has their kid at some point read through the diary of Anne Frank. But you know, we don't read the diary of Anne Frank just to read a book or just to mark it off of our course reading. But we read it to learn about her life. We read it to learn about what 
life was like during that time. I would argue that as we read the Bible, it's holy, it's important, and no one believes that more than me, but we don't read the Bible just to simply read the Bible, to say that we did our devotions, to mark it off of a list, but we read the Bible because in reading the scriptures, Christ says, these scriptures testify about me. Because in reading the scriptures, we learn what it means to trust Christ and to obey all that he has commanded for us to do. Now, I'm not saying that as you read the Old Testament, you see Christ in every little analogy and detail, but they do point us to Christ and what he would do for us. Jesus Christ, as he's giving this great commission, gives us this command to go and make disciples. So my first question about this this morning is, are you a disciple of Christ? Have you trusted in his gospel? Far too often we want to tell others about the gospel. We want to tell others what it means to be a good disciple, but sometimes we aren't good disciples ourselves. Have you been baptized? Are you learning and obeying all that Christ has commanded you to do. Sometimes we have lofty aspirations for what we could do for Christ, for the things our church could do for Christ, for the things that we could do for him in the world, but we haven't stopped and asked ourselves, what does Christ want me to do right now? What has Christ called me to do right now in my life? The call of the Great Commission is not only a call to evangelism to go out, but I hope and I pray that for us it's a reminder that we are disciples as well. And that as disciples, we should be learning, we should be growing, we should be living in all that Christ has commanded for us to do. And secondly, are you making disciples? Are you sharing the gospel with others? Are you going out Are you baptizing and teaching those who you've shared the gospel with? May it never be said of our church that we failed to share the gospel with those whom we had an opportunity to share it with. And may it also never be said of anyone in our church that those who we shared the gospel with, we left to try to figure the rest out on their own. I've been part of churches, I've seen churches who have done a great job of evangelism and sharing the gospel and I think actually making, helping people come to know Christ. Obviously God is the one who's doing the saving work. But unfortunately I've seen far too many people sometimes in those churches never grow, never change, never truly become a mature disciple of Christ. And we wonder where they're at today. The Great Commission is not only a call to evangelism, to share in the gospel, but it's also a call to teach and train others who are already disciples of Christ themselves. It'd be a blessing, it'd be a blessing someday soon for us to even fill our baptismal tank with water and have those who have accepted Christ, who we've shared the gospel with, come forward and make professions of faith And tell what Christ has done in their lives. And show that they are true 
followers of Christ. But friends, and don't miss this, it would not be a great day because our church would be so great. It wouldn't be a great day because we've done so much work. But it would remind us that Christ is building his church. We know that he's doing that here this morning. Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The sermon is not about me trying to get volunteers for VBS and people to do snacks and crafts and games. But if you want to, the sign-up sheet will be out in the lobby. But this sermon is a reminder for all of us, including myself, that our call to be here on this earth is not just to be content with where we are. Our call to be here is to go and make disciples. Our call to be here is to go and preach the gospel to others. Now, I'm not saying that we do this and that we stop preaching expositionally, that we stop having Bible studies that train others, that we stop worshiping God. That's not what I'm saying at all. I love those things about our church. They're essential marks of a healthy church. But as we look at the Great Commission this morning, I'm not saying that I want our church to to overemphasize evangelism in spite of all these other areas. And I don't even promise that if we continue to preach the gospel that we're going to see this room flooded and all these new people coming to our church. But rather, we look at these verses this morning to be reminded of this, that Christ is building his church. And even if not one person listens to us as we share the gospel with them, Even if that friend that you call later and share the gospel with never does repent, we can know that we've been faithful to do what Christ has commanded us to do. And we trust him that he will continue to work in our lives. But lastly, don't miss this, that we go and make disciples with the promise of Christ. These disciples who are about to go on this nerve-wracking experience out into the world to share the gospel, they would no doubt be afraid. In fact, some of them were already hesitant and doubting as we've read. They would need reassurance. They would need a reminder. They would need encouragement. So what does Christ say? And behold, I am with you always. We go and preach the gospel to others, knowing that Christ is with us, that he is present with us, maybe not physically, but spiritually, that he will never leave us or forsake us. These disciples would soon be sent out into the world, and no doubt they would have challenges. They would face intense persecution, as we've talked about in Sunday school. They would be persecuted and Most, if not all of them, would give their lives for Christ at some point. But Christ says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Look at Acts chapter 7. We see the church being persecuted and this intense persecution that's starting to sweep over the early church. And in Acts chapter 7, 
we see the stoning of Stephen. And look what he says. But full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Even until his death, Christ was with him always. Christ would never leave him or forsake him. Stephen was stoned. He did die that day, but he died trusting in the promise of Christ. Trusting that Christ would receive his spirit as he cried out even later. Friends, I'm not expecting that any of us would die for our faith. There might come a day where the Christian church here in America is more persecuted than it is. But I'm not saying that you're going to go out and that you're going to die for your faith. I'm not even saying that you're going to face intense persecution like other Christians are being persecuted around the world. But I am saying this, that as you go and make disciples, you can trust in the promise of Christ. That the same Savior who was there with Stephen as he was being stoned, that the same Jesus who made this promise to his disciples is here with us as well. You trust in the promise of Christ. Do you recognize that it's his gospel that we are preaching? Christ doesn't promise that everyone is going to accept the gospel. In fact, he says many will reject the gospel because they have rejected me as well. So he says you shouldn't be surprised about this. But Christ promises them that he would be with them always, that he would never leave them or forsake them. So as we close this morning, let us consider how can we proclaim Christ here at Sigmore Bible Church? How can we be faithful to make disciples here? Well, first of all, faithfully share the gospel with those that you know. Who in your life do you know that you could share the gospel with? That you could tell of Christ's love and his sacrifice on the cross, his victory over death? Maybe somebody you've shared the gospel with many times before. Maybe someone that you've never had the courage to share the gospel with until this moment. Who can you faithfully share the gospel with? Secondly, consistently look for opportunities to share the gospel with those that you don't know. Meet new people. Find ways to interact with new people, new families. Share the gospel with those that you don't know. Maybe you in hearing this sermon this morning and, and trying to obey what Christ has told us here in his word. Maybe it doesn't mean you're going to go preach on street corners. Maybe it doesn't mean you're going to go and become an evangelist. But maybe it just means that you're going to consistently find ways to meet new people and share the gospel with them. Thirdly, carefully instruct those who have put their faith in Christ. How can you disciple others? How can you be a blessing to others who have put their faith in Christ maybe recently, maybe a long time ago? Fourthly, dependently rest on Christ's promises. 
No one's going to be saved. No one's going to become a disciple because of anything we did, but because of what Christ has done through us. And then finally, anxiously await the day when we see Christ again. The truth about the Great Commission, the truth about these verses, is that they're not going to last forever. There's going to be a day when we no longer have to go share the gospel with others, but we will be united with Christ in heaven, worshiping him, seeing him for all that he is and all that he has done. This is a command that Christ has given his followers, his believers, for the age that we're in currently, for the church age, to go and make disciples of all nations. But I would challenge us again, as we make disciples, we don't make disciples of necessarily our political opinions. We don't make disciples without evangelizing and sharing the gospel with them. We don't make disciples without baptizing and teaching them. But we're faithful to make disciples of those who God puts us in contact with. And we wait and trust on his promises that he gives us in his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you reveal yourself in it. We thank you that we can trust in your promises, Lord. Father, I pray that as we respond to your word, I pray that as we go forth from this place, that you'd help us to be faithful to make disciples of those that you put us in contact with, Lord. I pray that we would be good and faithful disciples ourselves growing in your word, being nurtured in it. And God, help us to share with others in our lives the things that we've learned. In Jesus' name, amen.